Well, beloved, we are in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 12, and you can open up your copy of God's Word, and if you didn't have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab a Bible in the pews uh, in front of you, and uh, Romans 8, verse 12 through 17. We'll read God's Word together. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, how many of you have ever been held underwater just long enough to feel like your lungs are starting to burn and when panic begins to set in? My almost drowning experience came early on in high school. I was boogie boarding in the ocean and uh, sometimes waves would pile up on each other, especially when the storms were coming off of shore. And as I was going out to start riding the biggest swells, I got caught in a flurry of wave breaks. That's kind of waves that come basically about 10, 15 feet after another, and just again and again and again. And they generally break at the same spot. And if you've never experienced about an 8 to 10 foot wave crashing on your head, it's enough to disorient you. And so needless to say, I was disoriented. And then as I was caught in this flurry, I wasn't sure which way I was up and down, I'd Finally figured it out, get my feet under me, pop up, and guess what happened right, right afterwards? A wave would come right on top of me. And that happened four, five, six times, and you're barely getting any breath, and, and panic's beginning to set in. And when I finally escaped the break and got close enough to shore, I just remember thinking, oxygen never felt this amazing in my life. In that moment, I realized I really like living. I did everything I could to get out of the break and to go get some air. That frantic pursuit of oxygen happens because we cherish life. Even if we're depressed and say, oh, I don't cherish life at all. Life is so terrible for me. Do you go to the store and say, you know what? I'm going to pick out the worst looking apple. That brown banana, that's for me. This is all I'm worth. Of course you don't, because we all love the life that we live. And so we want plenty of oxygen and nice ripe bananas. But how do we live the life we live to God? How do we learn to aim our life towards glorifying and enjoying him in everything that we do? Is it possible to love God with some frantic passion that we love oxygen when we're drowning? Not, of course, that we flail about frantically, but there's a depth of desire for air, for food, that comes simply by being alive and loving life. Do you think regularly 
about needing God, needing him to sustain your life like oxygen or food? Do you think about God as supplying your greatest needs? Do you think about living your life to God and for his glory? See, up to this point in Romans chapter 8, Paul's emphasis has been on our way of life, the pattern of living that should mark every single Christian's life. He even uses the typical metaphor, the Christian should have a good walk or a walk that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called This simply means to to live as Christians live. Look at the beginning of Romans 8, verse 4. You see, Christians are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and death. Peace. And we remember that the flesh doesn't simply mean the physical world, but the flesh means our sinful nature, our inclination to want to glorify self above God. It's what takes over our desires, our motivations when we're, when we're passive, when we're just kind of going with the flow of life and doing what we want to do in any given moment. So if Following the desires of the flesh is so deadly dangerous, and it's our natural inclination. How is it that we change our desires? How do we begin to change our motivations? Well, the answer is both simple and complex. Simply, it's by constantly putting ourselves in the way of God's word, which tells us not only about God and all he's done for us, but also gets to the heart of motivations for why we do what we do and how we need to live and how we should live the life we live to God. But it's also complex because, sure, we may know this, but it's often hard to put into practice. But this text has in I, in its I, motivations. And that's why this text is easy to apply. These verses inform our motivations for how we should live for God. And so this morning, we're going to notice four motivations for godly living. Four motivations for godly living. See, godly living is the goal of every Christian. Now, before we look at Romans chapter 8, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. You need you to understand that godly living isn't just kind of an optional thing for Christians. It isn't just some, something that the higher Christians do or the true spiritual people do. This isn't an optional component of the Christian life. It is definitional of the Christian life. If you are a Christian, you are concerned then with obeying God. You are about trying to be like Christ. That's what motivates you if you are a Christian. And so I want to show you something that John says in 1 John 2, verse 3. Read with me. 1 John 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Well, this is a very good opening to a statement. You want to know if you've come to know Jesus? You want to know if you've become a Christian? He's about to tell you. Verse 3 continues. If 
we keep his commandments. And whoever says, oh, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, well, that person is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. And so by this we may know that we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk or to live in the same way in which Christ walked and lived. Now, this doesn't mean that you pretend that you're perfect and that you're going to be just like Christ in every single way and that you have some sort of halo around your head and that you're walking around and you have all your ducks in a row all the time. No, John's actually already made that clear. He has some harsh words for the self-righteous among us too, the hypocrites. 1 John 1, verse 8, go back a page if you, if you need to. 1 John 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the Christian life is one lived, recognizing that, yes, we all sin. Yes, we all continue to struggle with sin, but we also are those who are quick to confess that sin and aim our lives toward obeying God. And so John says immediately after that verse, verse 9, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how does that cleansing happen? Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation, that is a payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So we see the tension of our lives right there in just a few short verses. We cannot get right with God by being good enough. In no way are we saved because we tried really hard to be good. But on the other hand, if we don't see any concern about obedience to God, if there's little concern to, to know God, to, to know his ways, then God says here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, that we are a liar and that his truth isn't in us. So with that as our backdrop for understanding why every Christian is concerned actually about godly living, go back to Romans for chapter 8. You see, all along in this great letter, Paul has been making an argument about, it, about what it looks like to become and to live like a Christian. And he starts with the need that we all have to recognize our own sin, just like John did, our own inability to get to God based on good deeds. And then he helps us see that the point at which we are justified, the point that we, we actually become a Christian, the point at which we are right before God, that that comes because we trust Christ for our salvation. Go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. This describes the point of our salvation. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, that Describes everybody. There's no uh, qualification for all here, right? For everyone is sinned, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And if we are saved, we are justified. That means we are declared righteous. We are accepted before God by his grace, by a God's gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's that word again. 
that payment by his blood to be received by faith. You see, the essential element that every Christian must trust in, that must believe in, is the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place. He bore God's wrath that was deserved for you and for me while he hung on the cross. Yes, the physical pain and torture was excruciating, but even more insidious, even more difficult to work through, even more difficult to endure was God's wrath that was being poured out him for the sins of humanity. And so we see that we are right with God because we trust that the only way that we get to heaven is because Jesus bore God's wrath in our place as a substitute. And so we don't do anything to achieve salvation. And God's amazing grace is is just profound as it covers all our sin. And yet, Paul knows us too well, and so he asks a, a typical question that might come up at some point as you live your Christian life. Well, if all I have to do is believe, then great, I did that. Now I'm going to go live my life the way I want to live it. And so he says, Romans 6, verse 1. Read that with me. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound and may go bigger and bigger? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's given us a picture. Just as baptism is a picture of dying to self and raising up in new life, so it is that everyone who is a Christian has now died to self and is raised up to new life. And we're to, according to this verse, verse 4, walk in a newness of life. You see, very, very important here. Part of what it means to believe in Jesus is to die to sin, to die to self, to die to flesh, and so walk in a new way. So at the moment of salvation, we are said to be justified by the power of the blood of Christ. We are declared righteous because we've trusted in Christ instead of our own good works. But also every Christian, as we grow, as we continue to live the Christian life, will experience something called sanctification. That means we are gradually growing in righteousness. Justification is what happens when we are first saved. We are declared right before God. And sanctification happens as we grow in the Christian life. And so part of what Romans has helped us do is to examine the fruit that we see in our life. To see if we're actually walking with God or not. See if there's no desire, no evidence that we want to live for the glory of God above ourselves. then, then perhaps... We've never truly become a Christian, truly turned and trusted in Christ alone. Because true faith, truly trusting in Christ, will produce godly fruit or godly living. I was at a youth event one time, and the speaker told all the teens there, you know what, we need to stop going around and inspecting fruit in our lives. Instead, we need to trust in Christ more to live our life for the day. And that sounds kind of good, kind of right. But what do you think about it? 
Is it possible to trust Christ more without showing fruit? See, how do we see if we or a loved one trust Christ? According to Romans, it's, it's by fruit. According to many passages in the Bible, it's by fruit. Fruit is the evidence of our salvation. It's not how we get saved, but it's the evidence of our salvation. And so Christian, part of what it means to be justified or declared righteous before God is also that you will experience sanctification or grow in godly fruit bearing. So we always start with inspecting the fruit in our own life. Examine our own hearts. Yes, lean on Christ because he strengthens us for the day. And then we graciously help others do the same. And this is where we are at in Romans chapter 8. See, this chapter is a chapter that deals with fruit inspection. We're in the middle of Paul's argument about how it is that Christians are sanctified, producing godly fruit for godly living. And what I love about Romans 8 is it isn't just about behavior modification. It isn't just about changing a few things here and there in your life. But Paul gets to the motivations for why we do what we do in this chapter. This is so important because it's at the level of desire that so many of us fail. In fact, we often fail first in our hearts. We see perverse desires come up and we kind of coddle them and don't deal with them. And then those result in more obvious fruit. And so now Paul is going to highlight how it is that Christians can begin to transform our desires to conform to God, how we can live the life we live to the glory of God alone. Well, first point, you see it up there, live like you're in debt to God. First motivation for godly living, live like you're in debt to God. Now, when you are in debt to someone, you're obligated to pay that individual back. Proverbs 22.7 puts it like this. The borrower, borrower is a slave to the lender. And if you start getting in debt to the wrong people, you perhaps have watched a few crime shows to realize that your obligation can turn deadly dangerous, right? Hopefully none of you are messing with the mob, but you know, you've seen it. But there are different kinds of debts too. You can be indebted if someone does a huge favor for you maybe watches your kids in an emergency or helps drive you when your car broke down. And what do you say in those situations? Oh, I owe you, right? That's what we all say. We say, oh man, I owe you. Perhaps even offering to do the same. And this plays out in families too. We rightly feel obligated to help our parents as they age because after all, they cared for us and raised us and gave us life. See how important this is. I want to tell you a quick story. I knew a man who was a missionary in Bangladesh. And that's a very traditional Muslim country and a traditional Asian Muslim country where family is very important. And he was engaged in various translation work in the country. And his mother became ill about five, six years after being there and likely would die. And so he and his family made the difficult decision to come home off of the field from Bangladesh for about a year and a half to help care for his mom until she passed. And when he returned, it was the testimony of care for his mom 
that God used to soften the heart of one of his neighbors to the gospel. This man became a Christian in part because of this missionary's faithful love for his parents. You see, when we are in debt, even socially in debt, we're obligated to show honor, favor, and even at times serve and do hard things for other people. How much more when the person we're indebted to is God? You see, as Paul begins our passage, he makes an argument for what is true and right and good by actually showing us the opposite. Look at verse 12, Romans 8, verse 12. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's like he's asking us the question, did your fleshly desires do anything good for you? Did your passionate pursuit of sin, did that, did that really help you? Did that satisfy you? When you were little and yelled and screamed at your parents when you didn't get your way, how did that go for you? When you were older and you yelled and screamed at your family, how'd that go for you? When you gave in to the desires to overeat, to satisfy your sexual lust with images, to buy whatever you wanted to, uh, you, without regards to your budget, how does that go for you? You see, all these things lead always to death and destruction and difficulties in life. And if they are the pattern and the ruling desire of your life, verse 13 is very clear. If you live according to the flesh, just doing whatever you want to do, you will die. And this isn't just physical death here, but eternal condemnation, consciously experiencing God's punishment for your sins. You see, the end of doing what sinful flesh desires doesn't lead to lasting joy or ultimate fulfillment. It only leads to death. And so you are not obligated. You're not indebted to your flesh. Your flesh gets you nothing, nothing good. You're not obligated to serve it. And so that's why he says, verse 12, right? So then, brothers, we are debtors. But what are we debtors to? Not to the flesh, he says, to live according to the flesh. So if we are debtors, and it's not to the flesh, well, who, of course, are we indebted to? The answer, of course, is God. But the opposite between flesh and this passage has been really the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, who's, who's living within us. It's easy to see it is living by the Spirit, which is the opposite of living by the flesh. If God has justified you in Christ, if he has fully covered you by his blood, then yes, you are obligated to God to live by the Holy Spirit. And when you're obligated, indebted to God, what next? Verse 13 continues. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. Paul is so clear. There are only two options for your life. You're either a slave to your flesh, to sin, to continuing to live for whatever you want most, or you live for God. There's no middle way. There's no kind of, well, yeah, I kind of believe when it's uh, convenient. I kind of believe when it's fun and helpful to me, but when I've got other things to do, I don't really care that much about that. 
This has been Paul's point for the last several chapters. Go back to Romans 6, verse 13. Romans 6, verse 13. He says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He continues, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." And so Christians are those who, by definition, aren't slaves to sin. We aren't indebted to the flesh and obligated to follow and do whatever our flesh wants us to do. But we are slaves of a sort. We are indebted to God. We're obligated to serve him, follow his ways, live for his glory. Or as Romans 8.13 puts it, what? We're to live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of God. The body. To quote famously John Owen in this little book, Mortification of Sin, we are to be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is every Christian's obligation to lean upon the Holy Spirit in prayer, to lean upon Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures so that you can fight sin. Because as we live in a sin-cursed world, as we still have physical weaknesses and desires that flow contrary to God, we have to work hard to kill sin daily. And what is the motivation that we find in these first few verses? It's pretty simple. Live like you're in debt to God. Because you are. If you truly believe that Jesus died suffering extraordinary wrath, God's pure, holy wrath in your place, then you owe him nothing short of everything. Jesus' death isn't just a ho-hum matter of fact that leaves you with no obligations. You see, if you trust in Christ, it will affect your life. If you are motivated by realizing God has taken away your infinite debt, you will make a habit of killing sin and all sin that you see in your life. And so first, live like you're in debt to God. Second motivation for God the living is found in the next verses, number two. Live like you're adopted by God. Number two, live like you're adopted by God. Now, when I was in high school, I went with a group to Fortaleza, Brazil, to help missionaries uh, that our church supported. One of the ongoing ministries of the missionary that we went to go visit was to help run an orphanage. And before we started to interact with the orphans, the missionary took us high schoolers aside, and he told us, you know what, please don't promise these kids anything. Don't, don't promise to write them monthly. Don't promise to send regular gifts for Christmas or for their birthday or anything. See, many of these children have a hard time trusting adults anyway because their whole lives are a string of broken promises. And then this next part really stuck with me. It said, unlike in America, 
most of these children will not be adopted. They'll stay in this orphanage until they're too old. And then they'll move to an orphanage for teen, teens. And then they're going to be on their own, maybe 16, 17 years old. Now, I couldn't imagine at that point, I was 16, 17 years old, a life with no parents, no stable family, no place to truly call home, and no prospect of it either. And perhaps that, well, what could make matters worse, is if the child has a horrible orphanage situation, which some of them are, with no prospect for change either. See, as we think about our own situations, we too are as helpless to honor God. In fact, we are told the spiritual names of our birth parents are in Ephesians chapter 2. See if you can pick these out as I read Ephesians chapter 2. Just listen, Ephesians chapter 2, and I want you to listen for the spiritual birth names of our parents. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Parent number one, disobedience. Number three, among, verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so who are our birth parents? Disobedience and wrath. You might kids be asking, which one is mom and which one is dad? <laughs> now, a word to the kids who are sitting there, don't even try to guess. It won't go well for you, okay? But in all seriousness, this is our natural state. We are worse than a helpless group of orphans with little to no real chance of ever having a family. We are born spiritually dead, and our lives are heading in the direction of our parents' disobedience and soon to be objects of God's wrath. And so as we think about that in the context of adoption, God does not adopt only the best among us. He does not adopt the most beautiful children in the world. God does not adopt those who are pretty good people and who try really hard to be kind and good. God adopts us, Romans 5.8 5, tells us, while we were still sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 is also very clear. Verse 4 and 5, listen. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and by Christ you have been saved. God adopts us not because we're beautiful and good, but because he is gracious and merciful. So back in Romans chapter 8, as we're about to read, if you belong to Christ, if you trust in Christ alone for salvation, then not only have we been saved from God's wrath, but heaven becomes the greatest of all family reunions for us because you'll get to be with your heavenly Father without the fog of sin that separates us so often. Even now, a massive motivation for godly living is found in the simple fact 
God has adopted you into his family, right? And so our second point was live like you're adopted by God. Live like you're adopted by God. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see, we're reminded again that there are two types of people in the world, those led by God, the Holy Spirit, aiming to live godly lives, and those who are led by the flesh, Romans 6, Romans 8. We've all made this very clear. And so it says of every Christian, we are led by the Spirit. And if we aren't led by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell us. And we, if the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell us, then obviously we're not saved. Look back at Romans 8, verse 9, right? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not what? belong to Christ. So if you don't have the Spirit in you, you're not walking by the Spirit, then you do not belong to Christ. And so now in verse 14, if you do have the Spirit and you are walking by the Spirit, something glorious is true, right? Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. We're reminded that if we have the Holy Spirit, then we have been adopted into God's family. We're not just accepted as right, but we are forever a part of his family, permanently. And then notice what our adoption means for how we live in verse 15. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, that is slavery of the sinful flesh. If we belong to Christ, we cannot continue to live in open, obvious, unrepentant sin as if enslaved to our desires. Instead, our motivations are different especially as we relate to God. And so he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That is fear of God's judgment. We don't fear the possibility of God's wrath because his wrath has been satisfied on Jesus in our place and nothing can separate us from his saving grace. The end of Romans 8 is going to make that abundantly clear. We'll continue. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And these final words speak to the intimacy of our adoption, the intimate reality of our relationship with God himself. It's not just that we no longer fear his eternal wrath. It's not just that we've been saved from the consequences of our sins, but we actually get to call God dad, father. And that second word too, Abba. Now you might have heard it said that Abba is what a child uses to call dad, kind of like we would use daddy. And it does have that connotation at times, but it is more than that. Really, it expresses intimacy regardless of age. I mean, think about it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus himself cries out to the Father and he says, Abba, Father, take this cup of wrath away from me. Jesus is not regressing to speak like a child at this point. He is simply using the most appropriate and intimate term for the Father that he has in his language. He calls him Dad. Beloved, this is now the privilege of every Christian. We get to come to the Father to pray directly to him. We get to read his very words preserved for us, and we have an intimacy with God that only comes when we've been adopted into his eternal family. And as we read such glorious truths, 
the Holy Spirit speaks clearly to every Christian in these next verses. You are God's child. Verse 16 cements this idea. The Spirit himself bears witness, witness with our spirit. That is, by these words of Scripture, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, lasting motivations are rooted in reality. And the most significant ongoing reality in your life, if you are a Christian, is that you have been adopted by God. Not because you were desirable, but because God is gracious. We are born to, who are our parents' names again? Disobedience and wrath. And now we are free to obey, to reflect the holiness of our new family, and we are under God's permanent grace. Motivation to walk closely with God, to deny yourself and follow me, as Christ said, comes when we see our standing is secure before God, when we remember and act like we belong to God, when we stand humbly in his debt, knowing that we've been adopted into his family. Well, the third motivation for godly living is found in our final verse. Live like you'll inherit the riches of Christ. Live like you'll inherit the riches of Christ. I had a friend in high school whose parents won the lottery. No joke. Proof that it actually does happen on occasion. Not the mega millions type, not like the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or something like that. But I think about two to three million, all right? So not, not a little amount. All of a sudden, my friend shows up at school with this brand new Nissan truck with a sweet aftermarket sound system and a bumping subwoofer with his, you know, hard rock, you know, metal music playing and blaring in the parking lot. And we're like, what happened to you? I, I think literally several of us asked him, who died, right? Who, who gave you all this money? Like, how did this happen? He drove a beater car before then. He was not wealthy, right? Well, a couple of weeks later, he finally lets the cat out of the bag. I think his parents told him not to tell, but how long can that last, right? That his parents actually won the lottery. He then moved from his about 1,000-square-foot home into a 3,500-square-foot home up in the hills. For prom, his parents uh, paid for all of us to ride in one of those, you know, limo bus things. You ever seen those? It was really cool in the 90s. Anyway, um, the young man and his family had fallen into money, and they were not afraid to live like it. But what does it look like to be promised the spiritual riches of Christ? What does it mean to live like you're rich in Jesus? We get a few clues in our text. Verse 17. says, and if we are children, then we're heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. First, I want you to see our inheritance is an inheritance that comes directly from God. We're not just adopted children who kind of like now have a family, but the real children get all the money. No, we're actually an heir, and we're an heir of what God has. So whatever God owns is ours. 
Psalm 24, 1 says it this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. So this whole creation belongs to God. And we're supposed to then inherit everything, literally reigning over the new creation with Christ as co-regents or co-kings and queens. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says it this way. If we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So first, notice the object of our inheritance. It's what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? Everything. So what do you have coming to you? Everything. I can't like, make that any bigger, right? It is, it's everything. And if you've been daydreaming about winning the lottery since I mentioned it, think how small a couple of million dollars is compared to everything. But second, I want you also to notice who also is an heir. Verse 17, and if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. Now to let this sink in a little bit, think of this in the negative turn terms for a minute. If you and your brother, like I have uh, one brother, and if he and I were the joint heirs of our parents' money, but let's say they didn't make the wisest financial decisions, and after they died, we had to pay off some of their debts, then the lawyer's fees, and then the inheritance taxes, and actually we ended up, after they died, owing about $30,000. It would be great that I had a co-heir that we'd split that down the middle, right? 15000 each, not as bad as thirty. Now, on the positive side of things, think of it like this. Since God has infinite riches, what is half of infinity? Infinity, right? That's pretty cool, right? So we don't even get to like say, oh, well, I get this section, you get that section. No, we get everything. Everything is ours. And every blessing that comes to the risen Christ to reign and rule over all means it's coming to us too. Since we are joint heirs with Christ the riches of heaven are ours, and unlike the lottery, our inheritance can't be wasted on limos and buses and cars and houses and trips. Our inheritance is imperishable. Turn to 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Peter also speaks of an inheritance language. And this time, Peter connects our inheritance directly to our salvation in Christ, blatantly so. And just like our salvation provides us eternal security, that we're right with God, so too also it provides us with an eternal inheritance. That's his point. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that kind of is ongoing. It's not just this momentary hope. It's a living, ongoing hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why it's living. It's based in the resurrected Christ. And what is it that we have coming to us it is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, just as God causes us to be born again, so too does he promise to give us an eternal inheritance. Far greater than any lottery win. 
So we are reminded with Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. Just listen as I read. Stay in 1 Peter. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, and where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you treasure eternal wealth coming to us through Christ more than getting everything you want now? If we take a step back and begin to appreciate just how vast the blessings of everything really is, if we appreciate again just how unsearchable is God's gift of eternal life in the new creation, then surely this should affect the motivations of our hearts now. And so as you, set, you are set to remember God's eternal inheritance, remember to live like you're going to inherit the riches of Christ. That's a great motivation for godly living. But then curiously, there's a final motivation for godly living. And interestingly, this is found in both Paul in Romans 8.17 and 1 Peter 1, which is why I had you turn there. There's a simple progression he says, you know, look forward to your inheritance. This is a great thing. Consider God's vast, always unending inheritance, and this is a, a, amazing. Look forward to it. Then he said, there's something else coming too. Suffering is also designed to point you to your future inheritance. And so our final motivation for godly living is number four. Live like your suffering isn't hopeless. Live like your suffering isn't hopeless. It isn't pointless. Now, promised suffering doesn't sound good. If you were to take a preaching class, some people would say don't end with a downer. But, you know, this is where the text ends, so we have to end with a downer. When you're in the midst of suffering, one of the greatest comforts to know is that it is part of God's plan. You see, I love that the Bible meets us in real life. Because real life is full of sorrow and sin. It's full of sickness and disease. I love how the Bible pushes us to be honest about our suffering. This life isn't going to be one happy, motivated walk in the park to glorify God every day. This life is going to assuredly have trials, even your failures. We can even be seriously grieved by these trials, but part of godly living in the midst of suffering is found when we cling to our eternal hope that we have in belonging to Christ. You're in 1 Peter 1. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this, this salvation, this future inheritance, we rejoice even though, if necessary, oh man, why do you have to use that word, right? Because apparently it is necessary for us to be grieved by various trials. The grief and suffering is always real, but so too can hope-filled joy. And Why? Because suffering, as we were about to see, is God's refinery. It's what God uses to purify gold, as it were. Verse 7 continues. 
Why can we rejoice when we're grieved by various trials? So that, verse 7 says, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, as great as gold is, your faith is that much more precious. And how does God refine your faith? Through suffering, through trials. Pain, suffering, they are God's tutor in the sin-cursed world to keep her eyes fixed on the greatest of prizes, the best of inheritances. And thus, we stay motivated to walk closely with our Lord and Savior when we recognize what God is doing in suffering. Turn back to Romans 8 as we close. See these final words. As we look at Romans 8, 17 again, notice here, suffering also follows our inheritance. But this time, suffering is the necessary prerequisite to getting inheritance. It says, the spirit and spouse bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And verse 17 closes this way. Provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. That simple word right in the middle of the verse, provided, tells us that our future inheritance is conditional on whether or not we suffer, and we suffer well. Suffering well is part of what has to happen before we enter into glory with Christ and receive our inheritance. It doesn't say suffer perfectly, doesn't mean that if you have a bad several weeks as you had difficult pain or whatever the situation is in your life that you somehow lose your salvation. Certainly we'll never lose our salvation. But it does say very clearly here, part of what is in the Christian's future is suffering. It also reminds us of so many scriptures that promise suffering will come to the Christian life, like 1 Peter chapter 4, the whole chapter talks a lot about it. And 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. See, to be alive in a sin-cursed world is to know suffering, sometimes directly at the hands of others. But as evil comes in your life, and it will, we certainly grieve, we, we mourn, but we also don't suffer as if it's all hopeless. Remember, to suffer well is the path to our inheritance. It's often exactly what God uses to teach us what we need to learn and how to depend more fully on him. So you want to be motivated to live a godly life? Then live like your suffering isn't pointless. And trust that suffering is God's instrument for our good and that he always gives us the strength that we need to endure, even to thrive. Well, when Michelangelo finished the statue of Moses in the 16th century, he was flooded with questions of how he made this chunk of stone so lifelike. If you've seen images of uh, that sculpture, it is incredible. And Michelangelo is said to have responded, I simply kept chipping away at everything that wasn't Moses. You see, suffering often feels like we are being chipped 
and hammered away at. It's painful, uncomfortable, disconcerting. And yet we are the marble in the hands of our heavenly craftsmen. And although you feel blows are coming right and left and sometimes to what you thought was an integral piece of your body, we need to keep God's work in perspective. We need to remember that he is molding us, fashioning us into the most lifelike, the best and final version of ourself through our suffering. He makes us into the version that will inherit eternal life. You see, our calling is to suffer well, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, trusting God through the sometimes painful process. So as we close, I want us to listen to perhaps my favorite verse on the sometimes painful process of suffering and how we are to suffer well. You can jot this down, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, your suffering isn't hopeless. Because eternal glory is far better. It's simply a means to an end. So you want to stay motivated to live godly lives? Try memorizing 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 this week. And then number four, live like your suffering isn't hopeless. Live like you'll inherit the riches of Christ. Live like you're adopted by God. And live like you're in debt to him. Knowing that God not only saves you, but he promises to continue to give you the strength that you need to persevere for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've had a chance to study, to think carefully about your word. We're grateful for the glories of our salvation, and not only our salvation, the great joys of being reconciled with you now, but we have an amazing hope of a future inheritance And Lord, may that continually motivate us to walk closely with you, to live godly lives. Lord, help us to think about the truths that we just uh, studied and have carefully thought about, the realities that are ours, that we're adopted, that we have this great debt that's totally been paid for by you, and that we have this glorious inheritance, and that you promise us that we can suffer well. Lord, may that motivate us to persevere and to do what you've called us to do in this life for your glory and for our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.